Uh, great to see so many people here. Uh, welcome to the 2018 Clement Attlee Memorial Lecture. My, my name's Ben Jackson. I'm one of the history fellows at this college, one of the organisers of the lecture. It's wonderful to see you all here at this annual event uh, in honour of Attlee, who of course studied modern history here as an undergraduate, uh, uh, graduating uh, way back in 1904. And it's a, it's a fascinating moment in British politics uh, to hold this lecture, so we're delighted that Paul Mason has agreed to be our lecturer this year and to try and help us make sense of uh, what's going on. Uh, Paul will be known to, to most of you. He appeared on our screens for many years as a journalist for Newsnight and, and Channel 4, where he helped us understand the financial crisis and its aftermath. Uh, and alongside his work as a journalist, he's published several important books, most recently uh, Post-Capitalism, uh, a Guide to Our Future, which was published in 2015. Uh, now he's a, a freelance writer and commentator, uh, and he's also someone who's been closely engaged with the new direction taken by the Labour Party uh, since Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader. And it's on that subject that he's going to speak to us tonight, uh, and his, his title is The Radical Left in Power, Challenges for Labour in Government. So Paul, thank you very much for coming. any water in there and if there are any cups in it I w it would be really useful but okay, there's no panic and first of all uh, it's, it's, I'm delighted to see so many people here I think if everybody leaves who ex who's come here expecting me to diss Atlee there might be a few less because for some reason all my Twitter feed thinks I'm going to attack him uh, it's also brilliant to see so many young people here presumably some of you are students which when you go to a university that's sometimes can be the last, pe last set of people who actually turn up uh, um, I know that the, uh, that the Atlee Memorial Lectures are seen within the Labour movement as a bit of a blue Labour uh, sort of stronghold, Stuart Wood said to me, you know, watch out, it's all blue Labour, Crudus has done it before. Um, well, you know, Maurice Glassman, who invented the term blue Labour, uh, actually calls me black Labour, <laughs> by which he means uh, black hoodie and uh, balaclava Labour, um, but there won't be any... Uh, Oh, now I'm going to press this. Press it. Uh, there won't be any of that radicalism on display tonight because I want to talk to you about something much more radical than uh, wearing a black balaclava and black hoodie, which is taking power. Now, the earliest photograph I have of my dad, John, is a group photo at his primary school in Lee, Lancashire, around 1935. He's quite clearly one of the poorest kids in the school and the most sickly by far. If he'd ever seen the photograph himself, uh, he might have described himself as gormless. Deaf in one ear, suffering from adenoids, and very thin. When I look at my favourite photo of my dad, uh, on a beach in Newquay in the 1960s, I not only see somebody happy, healthy, and doing well in life, uh, but I see a man who is a manual worker, a lorry driver, who can sight-read music and sight-transpose music, and who could hold a reasonably informed discussion with anybody in this room about E.P. Thompson, about Solzhenitsyn, and about Tchaikovsky. His income had improved steadily throughout those 20 years, 20 or so years. His life chances had been transformed. And we have the technical term for that, intragenerational social mobility. Who did it? Who did that and what did that for my dad? How did a Kim kid from a semi-literate family living in a slum become an educated and cultural and moral human being? 
if we answer these questions with other questions, uh, we can get close to answering the question that I want us to look at tonight and which faces Labour, the Labour movement today, which is what is the problem that we are trying to solve? What is the problem that in our new iteration of left-wing politics that we are actually trying to resolve? Because the ghosts that haunted my dad's childhood are back, massively indebted Households, poverty, food banks, domestic violence, hope which never went away. But in the town I come from, 10,000 cases a year in a town of 50,000 people. Tower blocks that go up in flames. Housing insecurity for many, many people. And of course, far-right xenophobic politics. All these things, I will argue, are a symptom of a deeper problem which has made the idea of significant intragenerational social mobility, that is, improvements that happen to you in 10 years, in your lifetime, not to your kids, like in Jude the Obscure, but to you, seem like an impossible dream. Well, the answer to who did this for my dad's generation is fairly clear. It is Clement Attlee, uh, in whose honour we, we are gathered to discuss politics today. What the two Attlee administrations did was to meet the aspirations of my dad's generation so exactly that it was like the political equivalent of throwing a treble 20 at darts. It made a satisfying clunk as it happened, and it made a satisfying clunk when they remembered it 20 or 30 years later. As to what did this, the answer is capitalism. A form of capitalism that had been improvised as a response to crisis during the 1930s, theorised by Keynes and others, uh, and massively expanded during the rearmament process and the command economies of democracies in the process of winning the war, but would now be established from 1944 onwards overtly as a system based on explicit global rules, drawn out and laid out at Bretton Woods. In fact, Attlee's cabinets established a new form of capitalism, the most successful form of capitalism ever seen in Britain, because they understood what they needed to do, who to do it for, in what order, what the risks were, and how to overcome the resistance. Now, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party has clawed its way back to 40%, 41%, I think, today, in the opinion polls, because it's answered some of those questions, but not all of them. And I do not think it will get a significant majority government of the kind that will allow it to do the Attlee-style transformation unless it answers all of them. What are we doing? Who for? In what order? What are the risks? And how do we overcome resistance? Now, because you're all sitting on the floor, I'm going to try and rattle through some of this. And it's no fun sitting on the floor. As you find out if we ever have a Soviet and take part. But... <laughs> So, so we maybe get to some of this in discussion. What's the problem we're trying to fix? Well, Corbyn described it very clearly in his speech to the European Social Democratic Conference in Brussels in October when he used the words that are almost an exact translation of the words that are the first words in my book, uh, which is neoliberalism is broken. The neoliberal economic order is broken. Now, that model, that order, like all paradigms within the 250-year history of industrial capitalism, had a beginning, a middle, and an end. 
And the story of the beginning, middle and end is such a textbook perfect confirmation of the dialectic that it always throws the formal logicians of mainstream e economics. They just can't get it, but it's really simple. The factors that drove the success period are the factors that have destroyed it. It's just as simple as that. From 1979 to 89, it's imposed on the world, rattling through. From 89 onwards, neoliberal globalisation becomes a self-automating, a self-regulating, self-reproducing process which millions of people's minds understand and whose routines make you feel better. <coughs> if you do follow them, you know, uh, if you follow the routines that uh, allow you to survive a day working for Pret-a-Manger or McDonald's or Amazon, you feel better than if you spend, as my dad would have done, every hour of that day in mental revolt against it. So it's not just the routines, it's not just the ideology of the elite. People absorb into their very being, though, and they understand what success means. But from the mid-1990s, capitalism begins to regurgitate capital. The Asian crisis, the Russian crisis, long-term capital management, 1997-98, the dot-com crash, 2000-2001. In each case, the pattern emerges that there is an excess of capital compared to the real growth and productivity of the economy. It floods into the financial <laughs> sector, triggering a boom and bust cycle. Central banks respond to the bust by creating more money, cheaper money, greater access and more complex financial system. The illusion arises that complexity equals safety, uh, that the more complex and the more interdependent we all are, the less likely it is to blow up, and then it blows up, um, triggering the final financial crisis, or I would argue, of the neoliberal era, which was 2008. Now, if in the meantime the information technology revolution had produced what it promised, which was high productivity, high wages and high growth, this speculative frenzy might have ended with a new takeoff of capitalism. There are economists even now, uh, Carlotta Perez is one of them, who, you know, like me, sit within the tradition of post-Schumpeter, post-Kondratiev, long cycle theory, even though C Carlotta Perez is waiting for the takeoff. My argument is it's not going to happen because information technology is different. Uh, Alan Greenspan, remember, during the dot-com boom became convinced of two things. One is, and, and the dot-com boom through to 9-11 through to the, the real final tap turning on of Greenspan and Bernanke in the 2002-2003 period. Greenspan says mar the markets are more rational than central banks. The markets booming Nasdaq five times where it started five years ago is more rational because it understands that information technology is creating value we can't see. We can't measure as GDP. We can't. We, we can't. Nothing in the P&L uh, accounts of the of the firms reflects it. The markets must be right. Therefore, what to do? Turn on the taps of money even more. You know, I. The, if anything, says Greenspan, in the middle of the dot-com boom, the markets are too low. But it was linked to another thing, another kind of hubristic thought that crossed into Greenspan's mind, which was that. After 9-11, in addition to, to, the, to, to uh, technology creating intangible value um, and therefore the booms being logical and financial frenzies being logical, Western society based on you know, the end of history, final form of liberalism plus neoliberalism was 
self-correcting at a global geopolitical level. That is, Greenspan writes in his diary after 9-11, this proved to me that, that we are invincible. Now that's never a good way of going into a historical period, uh, as you know, and, um, uh, and the rest is history, and I'm not going to dwell on that um, now. But the problem remains that the technological revolution has not so far um, driven a, a, an expansion in value, in exchange value, if you're a Marxist, in just literally um, you know, measurable, measurable profit, productivity, etc. The actual problem is that over the past 30 years, according to the Bank of England's economists, who did a study in 2015 looking, breaking down the so-called secular stagnation thesis, the Bank of England's economists said that out of an average global growth rate of 3 to 4% over 30 years in the neoliberal era, technological innovation is responsible for precisely minus, two, minus 0.2 percentage points. So that's them, it's not me, it's not some Trotskyist, crazy, uh, you know, catastrophist economist. The bank's economists cannot find a positive contribution for 30 years to growth from technological change itself. If you look at what they actually found, then the drivers of growth changed during the neoliberal era. In the 80s and 90s, about half of all growth comes, according to them, from the expanded global supply of labour, and the other half comes from growth at the frontier of productivity, which, in, in theory, should include technological in innovation, but does not because they can't find any effect from it. Instead, growth at the, at the frontier of productivity for the Bank of England's economists um, the most measurable, measurably positive part of it is fiscal expansion. That is, borrowing money to spend on things and accumulating a debt about the same size as your GDP. Um, it is, in, it as well, of course, rising educational levels and falling inequality. They can measure that as well in, in, in relatively small increments. Uh, but it's it's... Until basically 2000, it's half non-technological productivity progress and it's half expanding the workforce. But then a switch takes place. Around 2000, according to the bank, productivity growth disappears and is replaced by catch-up growth in the world. That is, China enters by the WTO, China and Asia and Latin America begin to catch up. And catch-up growth is really quite easy to do if you know how to do it, and it's quite strong for about 10 years. Um, the problem is, going forward, say the Bank of England's economists, that the catch-up growth will peter out. Uh, and because technological uh, innovation is impossible to predict a positive outcome from, they say that the average growth over the next 10, 15, 20 years is going to fall from 3 to 1.5%. That's the bank, not me. Now, as Larry Summers, who is also a critical supporter of the secular stagnation thesis, says, the former US Treasury Secretary, said in 2014, quote, the difficulty that's arisen in recent years in achieving adequate growth has been present for a long time, but has been masked by unsustainable finances. If he's right, then the brutal conclusion I would draw is that neoliberalism was not a solution to the problems of a failed Keynesian system. It was a workaround. And that the problems that made Keynesianism fail, the problems that sent my dad off to occupy 
a workplace in, in the mid-70s and go on wildcat strike every other week were declining productivity and rising state expenditure in an era where wages had risen for 20, 30 years and could no longer be allowed to rise, that hasn't gone away, it's still there. And has been actually just shunted at one side by expanding the size of the global workforce, vastly inflating the finance system, cheap money from central banks, and borrowing on a vast scale by many states. Not all. Why is that important? Because it means you can't, if you want to replace neoliberalism, you cannot just replace it by returning to Keynesianism. If, Ke if neoliberalism is a workaround and not a solution, Keynesianism we know, the Keynesian model fell apart. We, maybe there's some people here who have a lot of skin in the game for the Keynesian model, but and we can talk about that. But why is it important to me? Because it means I want to say to my colleagues in Labour, the impulse that if we only nationalise more, tax more, plan more, upskill people more, build more council houses, build some railways and motorways, we come out of that with a functioning system that it will itself have a beginning, middle and an end and an upswing, is not true. It's wrong. And the, the problem is much more deep than that. And it means, of course, there is only the state, the market, and the non-market, as it were, the, the rest of everyday life, leisure time, Wikipedia. There's only three, <laughs> so, three sources uh, of, of productivity and wealth, and we're going to have to use all three of them, and therefore it will feel a bit like doing a bit of Keynesianism and doing a bit of socially progressive neoliberalism. But the point about the next 30 years is to do it with a different aim in mind. Because unlike Attlee generation, our, our economy exists in a highly connected global economy for now, we, if we are to pioneer a different model we're we going to have to take a lot more people with us than Attlee had to take foreign investors, foreign governments, foreign exchange markets and multilateral institutions and while the elites of this country have wasted, and internationally I would argue, have wasted time they've really wasted time in one Davos meeting after another since 2008 uh, like it's a bit, Davos is almost like a sort of Miss Universe and, and Mr. Universe and Miss World contest <laughs> for failed thinkers. Uh, <laughs> the global power system just began to fragment. Every year Davos is the same. Believe me, if only anybody ever invites you, do not go. <laughs> you can watch it on TV, and you know if you're there, as John McDonnell will find out next week, if you're not a head of state or a or a, a monarch from the Gulf, you, you have to walk through the snow like everybody else with the anarchists throwing snowballs at you. Uh, and, and, you're, and, and, you know, so it, it's not a fun place, but mainly because they, they haven't had a single good idea since the whole problem started, I would argue. And, and in the meantime, the global power system has just begun to fragment. And we've begun to see the evaporation of political consent, as I'm sure everybody here is well aware, in, in America, in Europe, the, the consent for the old system. Why? Because you can keep it alive on life support. That's what the central bankers are doing. They said that in the Shanghai uh, G20 meeting in 2016. We can keep it alive on life support. If it dies a bit, we'll just print more money. We can helicopter drop 10 grand into everybody's account if you really want us to. But you, the politicians, and thereby civil society, have to come up with a new thing, because as Mark Carney says, I want QE, monetary activism, to be a bridge and not a peer. 
It's got to go somewhere, not into the sea. And that's the challenge for everybody, for the left and right, and I would argue that the right have just failed to uh, confront it, as a result of which the global system is under stress, consent for being governed is under stress, and in some countries, even consent for democracy and the rule of law is fraying, and unfortunately, one of those countries is the most powerful country in the world. And that is, unfortunately, to all the young people, the world you live in. I'm talking about the United States. The, 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 the most frightening thing in your world is not King Jong-un and his, and his missile. It is the fraying consent for democracy and the rule of law in parts of the United States. So what can we, little Britain and Labour, 40%, half a million people, what can we and what should we do about it? Well, I argue the aim of a radical left government in Britain should be, over a five to ten year period, establish a new <coughs> paradigm, a new dynamic which could write, can drive economic growth, which replaces the broken dynamic of neoliberalism. It's easier said than done, but I think we can describe the sort of, I don't know how many there are of these, but if, if it was a sort of Chinese edict, this, there'd, be, there'd be a number. You know, there'd be the seven doables of, of Chairman Corbyn. Uh, uh, the seven doables, what do we have to do? We have to replace growth driven by asset price inflation, so all the building of empty apartments, with growth driven by productivity. If in the process we have to rely on some growth driven by the old methods, expand the workforce, and which can be through migration, it can be through older people coming back in, there's lots of things you can do, then we might have to do that as well. Uh, and if we have to do a bit of catch-up growth, because Britain now is so depressed outside of London and the South East that it, you could, I think you could tangibly measure catch-up growth between, say, Lee, where I come from, and Stockholm. There'd be a very different, tangible difference, uh, even Lee and London, to be honest. You could say what we'd have to do would be tangible and measurable. So if we have to do some old-style growth, we should do it. Um, and if we have to, as I come to, rely on a bit of monetary expansion, we should do that as well. But the aim has to be to wean consumers off cheap money, to wean the elite off tax evasion and rent-seeking, wean entrepreneurs off the creation of low-wage, low-value businesses and wean the private sector off reliance on outsourcing and rent-seeking activities such as, I would argue, PFI. Um, I call it the, the five weans, that's what it should be. <laughs> okay. uh, that, in one par paragraph, I would argue, should be uh, like when you're writing a script for Hollywood, what you, what you print... On, uh, and, and stick to your typewriter. That's what they used to do, the, the old Hollywood days. Stick a line of text on your typewriter. Any page that doesn't refer to that line of text, take it, rip it up and throw it in the bin. That's what John MacDonald, that's what Corbyn, that's what all these Labour ministers who are finding their, shadow ministers, finding their feet, and I would argue some of the other progressive parties as well, should just do, should concentrate on that and not much else. But people who think John McDonald's fiscal policy, the 50 billion redistribution uh, plan announced in the 2017 manifesto, and the 250 billion borrowing to spend by a, a state investment bank, people who think that amounts to an economic strategy are mistaken. It's just means to an end. I mean, 
all my colleagues in Fleet Street and the media had a lot of trouble getting their heads around it, um, and the people who drew it up spent literally, you know, were, which is a team of three PhDs, to be honest, three very young people under the age of 30, spent till 5 a.m. every day in that snap election making sure it was right. But that's the easy bit. Because you, an Excel spreadsheet can actually add things up. Reality uh, is, is, is different. And what I mean by this is not the difficulty of collecting the tax and, 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 and of uh, you know, the Laffer curve and the rest of it. it, it's, it is the, these are simply the fiscal preconditions for beginning a much wider transformation project. Labour has to use this money combined with micro-level reforms to the company law, to outsourcing conditions, uh, a limited nationalisation project, I would argue, to restore belief in social mobility in your lifetime. That is what I think it needs to do. Um, to, to bring non-ephemeral, real, credible, fast results for many people in a few years. And why do we know it's possible? Because Attlee did it. That's what I would argue, and that's the link. The millennial generation have to see, they have to emerge out of what will be a very scratchy election some, at some point in the next four years, hopefully with the Labour government, and see how they will get jobs where wages rise, where there's a career path, where servicing their debts doesn't swallow half their income, where young people who don't have a relationship with each other don't have to share a room, uh, which is what the, the new, that's the new student house, it's the room, uh, where life in small towns and cities becomes easier, more cultural, where, where basic amenities of life become cheaper, and where it becomes possible to see how you can escape from whatever trap you think you're in. You know, during, during the uh, Brexit referendum, uh, a friend of mine who lives in the Welsh Valley told me this horrible story. He's an economist. And he just said, this is how he put it. It's not my words, but they've always stuck with me. He said, there's, there's parts of South Wales where there's no Starbucks branch, obviously, and you can't imagine one ever opening. But the worst thing is, is if it did ever open, nobody from that town will get a job in it because they couldn't do it. That, I'm sorry, is the destruction of human capital and potential on a scale we should be ashamed of. And Labour, if it does one thing, has to put it right. It also has to put right and, and do something about belief in public services. It has to make them work, and it has to make them work like clockwork and better. That means not just funding the health service, so you don't end up with 95, 97% bed occupancy, you end up with a bed occupancy that allows resilience, that allows relaxation, that allows staff to develop them, their own skills, that allows innovation, because you can't innovate at the, uh, in a just-in-time system. You cannot innovate in a system without any um, space or, or breathing space. That's why all the innovation is effectively done by poor old Simon Stevens and Jeremy Hunt uh, sitting in a, a desk in Whitehall thinking, how can we innovate? Because everybody working for us, 1.3 million people, hasn't got even time for a cup of tea. <laughs> so, look, that it's money, it's space and time, and again, rewarding salary structures for a third of the population who work in the public services. Now, some of this could be done very easily. It's interesting that the one area that hasn't succumbed to, uh, to massive outsourcing, although there has been some, is the DWP. Because the 80 or 90,000 people who work there on the front line with Britain's most underprivileged, disabled, poor, you know, 
chaotic sometimes. People, there's no money to be made out of that. Not unless you're going to go down the route of A4E again. But imagine the change in the lives of millions of people that could be enacted overnight without primary legislation simply by just changing what the DWP does. It, 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 there's an army of very well-meaning, trade-unionised, lowly-paid people I would imagine, in large part, don't like the idea of completely sanctioning and, 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 and tricking and duping their clients all the time. Big changes could, you can get for nothing. It's what the consultancies call low-hanging fruit. This week's report from the National Audit Office confirms, for example, that PFI is a millstone around the neck of British, uh, of, of British uh, innovation, not a dynamo. Uh, the, the collapse of Carillion, which was, let's be clear, using the guaranteed profits from its low-value outsourcing businesses as basically the down payment on the ability to finance high-risk construction work. Just like Lehman Brothers, the high-risk bit killed the the safe bit, um, as far as we can see. Um, the risks and the rewards of outsourcing work to the private sector are not being properly calculated. It's being, they're being created as a form of economic rent for not just the, the, shareholders, and the uh, shareholders and the managers, although we should have them absolutely in our sights. But remember, for every pound um, you know, extracted by the management and the shareholders from Carillion's relationship with the state, another two or three pounds is leveraged against that in the finance system. The, the short selling, a third of all shares was short sold, speculated upon, um, and that's quite easily remediable. Now, Labour's 2017 manifesto, I think, does push, let's be, if anybody's here from the press, this might be the point at which you have to wake up and write something down. <laughs> uh, Labour's 2017 manifesto, I believe, pushes to the limit fiscal expansion in a stressed economy like ours. And I think this is well understood within Corbynism. That is, if you think that 50 billion transfer from the big companies and the rich to students, to the health service, to pensioners. It could be sort of doubled up to 100 if, if we only were a bit more radical. I doubt it. And in fact, what I worry about is that, that it can be, that the, 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 the room for fiscal expansion shrinks because of the damage that Brexit does <coughs> to the economy. Remember, everybody talks about Brexit black hole. If that really happens, then you know the nightmare I know that the Labour front bench has is that it gets into power and, it, and, and the civil servant says, you know that 50 billion you are going to spend on students' health education, we need it to fill a hole caused by Brexit. Now we might discuss later what, what might happen in that situation, uh, bearing in mind that the Labour manifesto in that si hypothetical situation would have a more recent um, electoral mandate than Brexit. But leaving that hanging, because I'm going to come back to Brexit, um, it's quite possible, even on our metrics, the Keynesian, the neo-Keynesian economist metrics that the, the Labour front bench likes to use, let alone on the metrics of the Treasury with the neoliberal economists and the OBR, the Government Economic Service, they, you know, they, are, they are classic you know, pre-2011 IMF. Uh, and if you know this debate, the IMF has a stupid 
um, idea about fiscal multipliers where it said if you cut one pound that it, it cuts 50p out from the economy and then they looked at it again and went oh no it's one pound 50 and our treasury hasn't caught up with that realisation yet but even if you use metrics such as, as uh, I, a, a proper understanding of the potential for borrowing and spending and also the, the potential for austerity to, to hit growth it might be that the fiscal space for a Labour government is quite small now, in that situation, borrowing 250 billion for investment is and should be and should have been in 2017, I argue, the flagship. That's what's going to transform Britain. Uh, and it had very little, uh, it, it was very, very badly concretised, I think, and it had very little take up. There weren't people, there weren't right wing journalists banging on the table like Ian Dale does to me every time I go on TV with him. This 250 billion, it's, it's ephemeral or it's terrible, but why, people weren't bothered with it. It's the key. Because next time, we need to explain to everybody where that 250 billion will be spent. Every school needs to know how many more teachers they're going to get. Every local authority needs to know what from their devastated childcare services or adult social care services they're going to be able to put back out of that 250 billion. I would think that this could be quite a popular thing to, to be able to do, particularly given that you may, you know, the, 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 our colleagues in the Institute for Fiscal Studies have developed a kind of one person specialism in, 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 in destroying Labour's fiscal policies. You can, you, you can argue theoretically that the, the tax is not raisable, but you cannot argue theoretically that 250 billion is not borrowable. It most definitely will be, because even, even if the rates go up a bit, we're, it, it, there's too much capital in the world. It is desperate to be borrowed, um, especially by a government that has a printing press in its own currency which just economics 101 tell you cannot go bust. But when we spend that, it can't just be about motorways, railway lines, and a few more museums and theatres. Broxtow, uh, campaigning Broxtow in the election, Anna, Anna Subri's seat, uh, which Labour is trying to win, has a motorway running through it. The only problem is it's only got one exit, uh, so it's not really much use. You can go somewhere else, but you can't go anywhere, through, anywhere <laughs> from north to south Broxtow. And it is two worlds. It's Britain in, in microcosm. The north of, of Broxtow, the constituency, eastward, uh, the, the mining villages, uh, where the left had been fighting fascism and far-right uh, xenophobia since the 70s. All the Labour campaigners said to them, how do you meet in the 70s in the ANL, when the same villages that are voting UKIP now had a core of Nazis working in them. That, these are old, old problems. And then south, it's like this. It's a university town. How do we put it back together? Not with an extra motorway exit. Um, you know, there is, there is a railway and it runs through it, but it's more. It, 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 and this is, this is the, the core point, the, 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 another wake up if you're a Daily Mail journalist. Uh, I should emphasise here, I, don't, I speak just only on my own bat. I think that's the perfect thing for a, a journalist to do, to, to throw ideas out rather than be seen as representing some other, you know, like whether Corbyn or McDonnell or the Labour, I don't. But, but this is my idea, this is I think an important idea, that what the Treasury will try to say and what mainstream economics will try to say is that that 250 billion borrowed and spent via a state investment bank leveraging in hopefully another 250 private money can only be properly and justifiably borrowed if it is spent on investment. But the problem we have is in a information driven society it's human capital, if to use that horrible word, but let's use it, human capital that we have to invest in. The idea 
the building a few motor okay build a few motorways you get a few builders trained you build your tunnelers we have to train a generation of tunnelers so we've got excess tunnelers now so <laughs> you know, on the basis that you visit a, a surgeon they're going to operate on you uh, you visit a medic they're going to give you some medicine uh, somebody's going to be building a tunnel uh, under labor because there's a lot of tunnelers good but but that's not enough I would argue that public spending on skills and human capital and culture is going to have to be tri classified as a form of investment. Now we can't, you know, we can't go too far down this. I don't want to abuse that, but I, I do think that you know the big blockages. If you wanted to do it in a kind of command economy way, which I don't, what the commissar would be doing would be would be sorting out why. Why are there so many vacancies in the NHS? Why are there so many vacancies in high-skilled high engineering? If there's any engineers in, in this college, in this room, you know, I, I can take you to companies you've never heard of that have got 6,000 <coughs> 6, high-skilled workers and 2,000 vacancies in this country, if you fancy living in the north of England. Why? Why? Because, we ha because the industry won't train them, because the, the industry is all working to absolute tight margins, and because there's no government training scheme, there's no levy, there's a few levies left, aren't there, the construction industry, but levies, the proper training levy, which at this now in the 21st century doesn't mean HND, it means PhD. If you're going to do finite element measurement, you know, a million data points for every centimetre of an aircraft wing, uh, that's what you need. The problem is nobody has the money to train them, and therefore, as one guy said to me in that industry, we have PhDs driving minicabs. That's, do, that's sortable. Uh, and, and I think we just have to put money and effort to do it. But even that might not be enough to kickstart the level of immediate dynamism and investment that I think we need to, to put Britain right. And that's why I think the third thing I would suggest is that we keep QE going, give, give a Labour government and the Bank of England the option of expanding unconventional monetary policy. Uh, as the bank's governor himself said, uh, as I myself adumbrated, uh, in, by coming to this section of the speech before I meant to, it, 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 we've got to build a bridge, not a pier. So we can build a bridge to the future using monetary policy. Uh, and what does that mean? I mean, there's lots of things you can do. There's lots of things you can do with monetary policy. But what, one of the low-hanging fruit could have been, and this is just my, I bang, banged on about this idea, nobody's really taken it up, is that, you know, student debt. To, to do something about student debt, you print an X amount of billion of money, you buy the student debt with it, and you don't write it off. You have to just bury it in, in a, a long-term vehicle that makes the interest rate fall very, very low, possibly towards a magic number that Angela Merkel likes, which is zero. Um, but you can do lots. Uh, that's, that's for the policymakers to do. These are, this is a policy framework I'm trying to outline. Any government that did what I'm suggesting would be an outlier in the global system, have no doubt about it, and your professors here will uh, uh, you know, be very happy to diss it, and uh, it will meet resistance. Um, as it does so, the worst thing you could do is what Francois Mitterrand did between 1981 and 83. Mitterrand says in his memoirs, because, because basically he, he expand, went down the route of fiscal expansion and Keynesian uh, state investment, and then the markets destroyed him. And it, and it was capital outflow, you know, really massive capital outflow. And Mitterrand said, I would have to choose between Europe and social justice. I chose Europe. Well, 
The thing is, things have got a bit worse since then. Uh, and I don't think, you know, I, I would not like to see another left government go down the route of that. Now, if the global system, therefore, in the form of a financial market, averts sabotage or capital flight or non-cooperation by multilateral institutions, try to stop a Labour government. The art of governing, I think, is to learn from what the left has done in power, or rather learn not to do what has been happening so far. Um, you're not going from a, for, for a slam dunk victory. I don't think it's possible in a globally... You'd end up with autarky, and you won't win either. Uh, you can go for a score draw against the global system. And I think that's, in, his, in their own minds, that's what the actually experienced politicians of Syriza were trying to achieve in 2015. Everybody looks at Greece through the lens of Yanis Varoufakis, very inexperienced politician, very gobby uh, politician. <laughs> but the, the old guys you never heard of who only speak Greek and have been around and you know, tortured under the junta and uh, are kind of you know, in their late 60s, were going for a score draw. And I think that's worth rem remembering, that they're still in power, still defending people against, i.e. still implementing a, I would argue, a relatively socially progressive version of austerity compared to the one that the international institutions wanted them to, and of course defending a million Syrians and others as they, as, you know, because the Greek right would have quite happily you know, revved up the motorboats and tipped them into the Aegean. Uh, so, you know, Without lionising Syriza, I think, and the Greek experience, we have to learn from it. Uh, going for a score draw is a good idea. Going for sort of not doing much is also a bad idea. I just give in immediately. But you've got to, it's, it's, you've got to try. You've just got to do something and see what the markets do back. Now, I think, of course, a state the size of Britain would not be the same as, as, as Greece. You'll know there was a big furore when John McDonnell said in a meeting that I was at that Labour was going to in some way model or think about or war game the idea of, of a final financial market backlash. As far as I'm aware, I don't know whether they've done that, but you know, it, what I think is a more, uh, and rather a more realistic way of thinking about it, and I think this is uh, being understood inside the Labour Party, that what it will come to is incentivising the long-term money that is in the British financial system towards that long-term investment plan that we want to do and resisting, using the state power, uh, the, short, the, the inevitable short-term money backlash, because short-term money reacts to things like, oh, we've raised a little bit of a Tobin tax that raises $1 billion and doesn't care about you know, $250 billion worth of investment opportunity. So it's about politically balancing the short-term money that's in the city with the long-term money that's in the city. And both have entirely justifiable uh, fiduciary duty towards their money. It's just about Labour understanding how you can incentivise pension funds, fund managers, to go with the flow on what we want to do. I think that's going to be it. But of course, I'll add this caveat. And, and again, if you hear from the Guido folks or the Daily Mail, <laughs> worth re waking up for this bit. I think Remember, short-term hedge fund money, you know, financial outflows in the face of a left-wing government, that's, that's, that's in the script, that's part of the course. Active politically motivated sabotage using financial instruments is, in a democracy, not allowed. And Britain, unlike Greece, has a quite good um, state apparatus when it comes to finding out what people are doing. And I, I think we ought to use it. 
if anybody does, in a purely pernicious and politically motivated way, try and take down a Labour government. Because that Labour government will, at that point, embody the will of the people in one of the oldest democracies in the world. Now, cutting to the chase. We've got to recognise that we're doing this in a, amid a global system that is fragmenting. And in, in a game that has become not zero sum or negative sum, but a smaller sum. There's a, you know, that 3% growth for 30 years down to one5 for 30 years is a smaller sum. And what's happened? I think the misunderstood, not, not well understood, the biggest thing that's happened in the last two years is Xi Jinping's turn to a new strategy for China. Uh, Xi Jinping has has, will determine the form in which China emerges as a global power. And it's state-led, it's very popular with the working class. Uh, Marxists I know who like Xi Jinping can make a very good but wrong, I would argue, case that he's doing something progressive. But what he will do is compete for every cent of growth and every cent of talent and every cent of innovation in the world. That's what China's going to do. It's not just about building a belt and road. Uh, it's about mandating its private sector to produce by 2030 a world-leading AI industry. Now, you know, when, so when you see some hapless minister from some hapless social democratic party stand up and say, we're going to be the world leaders in AI, you have to remember that there is a 1.3 billion people state with a command economy and very little freedom that also wants to do that. <laughs> and I wouldn't give anybody any chance of doing it because China is a brilliantly talented, efficient and innovative country and people. So what's the situation? It means that in a less sum game, a smaller sum, with more competitive people playing it as if it was zero sum, that's the new game. And above all, when the country that designed globalisation, enforced globalisation on the rest of the world, benefited from it, and then theorised it into something called the Washington Consensus, votes against globalisation, that should tell you that the world you live in has changed, and that the old rules under which social democrats were trying to function have changed, uh, even if we want to resist the breakup, if we take the parallel of the 30s, read Charles Kindleberger's History of the Depression, the last one out of the traps is the one that goes fascist. The last country to realise the rules have changed and carries on playing through the old rules, carries, carries on doing austerity while people are saying, don't do austerity, the fascists are going to get into power. No, no, we'll do austerity. And by the way, we'll just suspend parliamentary rule while we're at it, because that's easier, isn't it? Uh, which is what burning von Papen, Schleicher, did in the run-up to, hit, to Hitler. You know, I'm not saying we're going to go through that, but I'm saying learn the lessons of not realising the last ones to realise have the worst outcome. So, what, do we, to, what, what should we do? What do we do in a situation where the world economy is breaking up? It's the Tories' inability to ask that question that has left us in this mess. The idea that you can break with one big free trade bloc that's taken 30 years to, to, to assemble and enter a much bigger, unspecified one called the world economy <laughs> at a time of contracting growth, rising protectionism, 6,000 protectionist measures since 2009, despite the 2009 G20 saying there shouldn't be any, and with one specific power finding its own feet in the world, which is its entirely right to do so, that's really, you know, that's a really stupid thing to do. It is, what we've done is a really stupid thing. And I think this, to do this is what the Tory right will be remembered for 
in the Clement Attlee lecture of the year 2118, <laughs> which hopefully will take place in, in this exact room, and, <laughs> with all these books replaced by little microchips, and you might, you might have gone transhuman by then. You know, but long after the grey non-entities of this cabinet are forgotten, the Tory rights kamikaze exit from Brexit will, from, from Europe will be remembered. Now, what we're seeing among the Brexiteers is the same fantasy that Trump is pursuing. I call it national neoliberalism. You break from globalisation, uh, which is a system of, rel of free trade underpinned by multilateral institutions, and you trust to the principle of free trade with no multilateralism to in some way uh, achieve results, and insofar as they don't, you just head for, head for the exit of the world system. Trump and people like J Jacob Rees-Mogg are effectively trying to do the same thing. More Singapore, lower wages, more deregulation, fewer health and safety it, on a national basis because it's no longer possible to do it in a multilateral economy. Now, in, we can't match their national neoliberalism with a form of Keynesian autarkic <coughs> 1950s socialism. We just can't do it. Our retreat from the global system has to be reluctant. It has to be like a retreat, like in the military sense, you retreat in order to gain time. I, you know, I think it's good that TTIP was defeated because TTIP gains us to not having TTIP. You know, you'd have had 60%. If TTIP had been published, hey, this is what it means for the NHS, I think game over on Brexit. I still think, as I'll come to now and to finish, we're going to have a, a difficult time during Brexit, but um, you need to retreat reluctantly. Britain was always going to have a semi-detached relationship to the Eurozone and to Schengen. And for me, that's what the referendum was about. That's why those of you who know my work know that at one point I was thinking, would a, 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 a tiny left exit be, work, be possible? And I came to the conclusion, not without, not really without stirring up what it stirred up, which is right-wing you know, xenophobic backlash. And so I voted and fought for Remain on a critical basis. Um, what form does the semi-detached relationship take? The problem is, with their non-majority in Parliament and their deep divisions, the Tories are totally incapable of answering that question. The moment any of them dares to write the answer down on one side of a sheet of paper, put it on the Cabinet table, is the moment the Cabinet splits and the Government falls. So Labour has to answer the question. Now, I don't support those who want to Labour to make an unconditional commitment to staying in the single market after Brexit now, although a Norway-style deal of a bespoke character is, seems to me all triangulated at the moment against where public opinion is, all you could prob probably get away with doing. However, this is the way I look at it, and don't read from this, this is how Corbyn and McDonald think. I, I'm absolutely certain this is how, not how they think, but, but I think it, it coincides with what they're doing. Okay, which I'll try and demystify why, why do I think what they're doing is not as bad as what some Remainers think. The opportunity exists to defeat Theresa May in Parliament and to force an election. And if there is a de deal put on the table at all during that process to put that deal to a ratification referendum. That's what I think the opportunity is for those of us who think kamikaze bailout of uh, Europe is uh, a stupid thing to be doing right now. Here's why. I've spoken in the last few days to, to a large number of uh, pro-Remain journalists, policy makers and thinkers, and their consensus these are people who don't want a soft Brexit they want a complete Remain slam dunk, you know, overturn the referendum. 
they are very, they are very pessimistic about the. I just say, you know, I everybody's FBPE. I'm not big big into this FBPE meme on Twitter. I think a lot of honest Brexiteers find it insulting and blah blah blah. But good, whatever whatever the situation, the inner core of people who are, are the you know are thinking and talking and setting strategy on the Remain side think they have very little chance of stopping Brexit. And here's why. Because May, here's my prediction, and I think it's quite well uh, sourced, May will, between now and Christmas, try and get away with no deal. But that's not the same as off a cliff edge hard Brexit. What she wants is a one-line agreement signed by Barnier saying, we have agreed to do a comprehensive trade deal in the next three years. They then extend the two-year uh, transition to a third year that's my other prediction and the Tory right get to March 2019 and they get Brexit and they get the promise of a, of a, of a trade deal and for them then that's the psychological moment where all people who think Brexit's a bad idea give up that's what they're after now I think that is their strategy and it's defeatable because Labour and the other progressive parties can and should, I argue, rather than what they tried, what the SNP tried to do, which was to put people around a table to commit to single market. Now, what they could do is to establish a set of red lines, above all in the Commons, forget the Lords, the Commons, that allows Parliament to prevent the signing of a one-line deal. That means if there's no reference to customs union, if there's no guarantee for the three million, if there's no guarantee for a soft border in Ireland, you say parliamentary vote, yay or nay. You go into the lobby and you defeat that. No, she may defy my prediction. She may walk, make our day and sign a deal. You know, and it, as you know, it'll be an awful deal. It'll be way short of what the hard Brexiteers want. It'll be a rule-taking deal for a long time, and it won't... Uh, and then, of course, then Hammond has to quantify it. Dear Theresa, we're about to lose £30 billion out of the tax base. You know, that's, at that point, that's very defeatable. Now, to finish, if in that vote the government falls, I think Labour should force an election. It should stand committed to achieving a trade deal with at least tariff-free access and, if possible, a lot more. A bespoke, my version, whatever your version is, insert your own version there, but mine is a bespoke version of Norway with some changes on our supply side to, to, to labour laws that mean that free movement is less than it was. It won't feel like what it was, but we can, I think we can do this. Um, no. And, of course, a generous deal for the three million EU nationals who are living here, which, for me, I think Labour should go out on a, on a limb on this. I doubt it will. I would offer every one of them the right to vote in the general election. So having a local election, why not? I've campaigned with them, people on the doorstep, polls and uh, checks in the British general election who can vote in a local election, not in a general election. Why? And then, if Labour can do a deal, possibly in power with an SNP-plied Green coalition then you put that to a referendum. You put it to a referendum. And I'd be quite happy with a referendum that said, deal, hard Brexit, stay in. I think you could take that to the Supreme Court and, and win the right to do that. I, I, I think that should be, be a no-brainer. What does it mean? Well, Attlee, at a critical moment in British history, gave my 18-year-old dad, in his first year down Astley Green Colliery, uh, something to say, as a Labour voter, to the middle class people, there weren't many in that town, the shopkeepers, the foremen, the professionals, 
uh, the old mine owners at the time, who were all Tories and Liberals. Uh, he gave him something to say to them, and that is, let us face the future, which was the title of the Labour 1945 manifesto. And <coughs> what the last line of that manifesto says is really relevant to now. In these circumstances, we, Labour, appeal to all men and women of progressive outlook who believe in constructive change to support the Labour Party just for this <coughs> once. And to put it slightly more in an updated form, um, you can't be clearer than the words Alexis Tsipras used, which is the words I would use if I went to some of the places we're going to have to go and win to break out of 40%. Uh, Tsipras' slogan in the, in the 2015 election it was incredibly powerful. In Greek, hope is coming. That's what our slogan should be. Thank you.